The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Art Science Reading Group. Um, I almost said this meeting for October, but it is September. Time is a myth, time means nothing. Uh, if you've joined us before, welcome back. If this is your first time, thanks for coming. Uh, tonight, the Art Science Reading Group is gonna be talking about the ways in which art and science help us imagine, prod and poke at the unseen and the unknown forces in our universe. Uh, joining us tonight, as always, is my phenomenal co-host and co-founder, Amelia McConville, fellow Trinity researcher and researcher at the Long Room Hub. Um, we are both working in the fields of art science. Um, I'm looking at the ways in which we prototype ideas in public spaces and how we can design, create, and imagine a more inclusive future for scientific research and technological innovation. I'll let Amelia introduce herself, her own research, and our guest speaker for tonight. Thank you so much, Autumn. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us um, here tonight. Uh, we're very glad uh, that you could be with us. Um, for those of us that are based in Dublin, we're in level three lockdown, as I'm sure you're all aware. So the maybe the, the one tiny silver lining of, of being in level three is that we get to have you guys with us here tonight. Um, you're not being called away to uh, other commitments on this rainy Thursday evening. Um, yeah, as Autumn says, uh, absolute pleasure to be here. My name is Amelia. Um, I'm uh, a researcher, PhD researcher um, in Trinity, and I'm also doing an interdisciplinary art science um, PhD. I'm looking at neurohumanities and visual poetry and visual poetics um, as they are configured within poetry. Um, I'm looking at some cognitive science as well. Um, as Autumn says, I, it's, my, it's up to me to introduce our guest tonight. So we're so excited to have um, Alexandra Carr here with us tonight. Um, and we also want to say a special thank you to, um, I suppose, our friend of the webinar series, um, Rivka Isaacson, who I think is with us tonight in the audience. Um, Rivka very, very kindly um, suggested that we invite Alex along. Um, because of uh, Alex's amazing interrogation of this art science divide in her artistic practice. Um, so we want to credit Rivka, a credit where credit's due, and say thank you so much for your suggestion. Um, and we're really looking forward to how this conversation unfolds tonight. Um, a gentle reminder as well to everybody that if you have questions that arise during our conversation, please do use the Q&A function. Um, we're going to be speaking to Alex, uh, interviewing Alex until about uh, seven o'clock. So we'll have about a half an hour conversation with her, myself and Autumn, but then it's up to you guys um, as our audience to uh, ask us questions, to ask Alex questions, to maybe extend or expand on any of the, the topics that we've broached thus far in this half an hour. Um, so if questions occur to you guys um, as, we're, as we're speaking and as we're conversing, please don't hesitate to put them in either the Q&A or the chat function and we'll get around to them just after seven o'clock when we switch over to you guys. Um, so yeah, without further ado, it's up to me to introduce Alex. So. Alexandra Carr is an artist working with patterns in nature, natural processes and phenomena. She completed a foundation at Central St. Martin's School of Art and Design and a ceramics degree at Camberwell College of Art. She has exhibited work at the Fondation Cartier in Paris in collaboration with Jean-Paul Gaultier. She has been commissioned work from seminal musicians Radiohead and was recently shortlisted for the Arts at CERN Collide International Award 2016 and longlisted for the Aesthetica Art Prize in 2017, 2019 and 2020. She frequently exhibits internationally and works in collaboration with cross-discipline experts, including sound designers, chemists, geologists, cosmologists, and theoretical physicists. Her practice is predominantly science-based and experimental in nature, and includes drawing, sculpture, kinetic works, photography, video, and new media. Of particular focus is the boundary between art, science, and technology. She spent six months at the artist collective Haima uh, in Iceland as an artist in residence and mentor. She had a Leverhulme-funded residency called Sculpting with Light at Durham University, investigating medieval and modern cosmology in collaboration with a physicist, historian, and cosmologist. She is currently working on new projects in kinetic and interactive sculptures with a particular focus on phase changes, smart materials, and new technologies. She is a fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies, working on an interdisciplinary project called Material Imagination to collaboratively produce biological smart materials. Um, so if that hasn't, if that bio hasn't whetted your appetite for our conversation um, with Alex tonight, I don't know what will. Um, 
I'm gonna, Alex, thank you so much again for being with us um, here tonight. Um, I'm gonna jump in and ask the, the, the first question, um, if that's all right. Um, so as we know from your bio that I just, just read out, uh, for everybody. Um, you've worked with Jean-Paul Gaultier and Radiohead, as well as being longlisted for Aesthetica Art Prize several times, uh, including this year. Um, can you tell us about, as a general introduction, about your artistic trajectory thus far and how you've ended up in your current science-based artistic space? Um, yes, uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for having me before I answer that question. Um, it's a real privilege to be amongst um, like-minded people and find a few more of my tribe. Um, but to get to your question, um, my, um, my entire practice actually was a bit of an accident. Um, I never ever intended to be an artist, um, but I came out of Camberwell with a ceramics degree. Um, knowing that my parents were both self-employed, I never ever wanted to work for myself, so I tried to get a so-called proper job. Um, so the proper job that I chose was to be a model maker for Norman Foster, the architect. Um, and they asked me if I would, um, <clears throat> if I'd likely get bored and want to be an artist. I said, no, 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 none of that. Um, but that did happen. Um, but thankfully, I think some of um, the aesthetic from Norman Foster's studio and um, being exposed to a lot of parametric design kind of led me to be interested in natural forms and patterns and, and nature in general. Um, so then I sort of, fumbled about trying to do my own thing. Um, along the way, I, I got drunk and bought a kiln. <laughs> um, and then uh, messed around with that, got invited by um, an old alumni friend from Camberwell to um, exhibit some work. And one thing kind of led to another, really. I mean, I, I exhibited a few things and then I started working for uh, another artist um, installing works all over the world. So that gave me a real insight in, into what she did um, and how the art world works. Um, I also was invited by another friend to, um, to launch her debut album at Wilton's Music Hall. Um, and my boyfriend at the time said, you know, because you're a ceramicist, you don't necessarily have to do clay. So I didn't, I did a massive audio visual performance and I didn't know what I was doing at all. And that kind of set me up on the way to tr just challenge any possible material. Um, so the sort of, when you, when you read out my bio, I, I, I actually think it's possibly the best way for me to ever enter a room. And if, Amelia, if you want to come along to any meetings in future, then you're, you're more than welcome. So it gives me an enormous boost, but all of those things that you mentioned were just sort of happenstance really, you know, I sort of, I have this habit of scooping up academics at scientific lectures and clinging onto them. And then somehow I'm exhibiting a DNA helix suspended by, uh, in Ely Cathedral, 20, 25 meters high. You know, I, I sort of, bit by bit, it's been very, very organic. And it was never ever my intention to have a scientific artistic practice but looking back it's kind of there could no not be any other possibility really i think it's really amazing too that you've been so open to chance and to serendipity that even what you said about having this conversation with your boyfriend at the time about how you you could challenge yourself with other materials just because you started in ceramics didn't mean that you had to stay there that you could become so experimental and there seems to be i mean there's a huge overlap between artistic practice and science practice in that regard um but a lot of times uh, there seems to be this kind of weird hierarchical relationship between art and science so i was wondering if you couldn't uh talk about that and how you negotiate the hierarchy or if you feel that there is one between artistic practice and scientific practice and how you approach that kind of within your own work. Um, well I think um, with the art science field I mean if I've if I've kind of taken your question to me what it means there's a little bit of tension sometimes when um, an artist and a scientist collaborates for instance in that scientists or sometimes artists actually feel it's very one way there's a, a transfer of information and it's either just um a representation of the the scientific work 
or it's or the scientists feel somehow used in that they're taking that source material and running with it and are not feeding back into that process um so that's why i collaborate quite intensely with a lot of scientists that i i um i meet and i don't I, i'm not just interested in in having a visit to a lab and going my own way i'd actually i actually prefer that that's what material imagination is about the most recent project to actually actively um, influence that research process. Um, and in terms of framing my own work with science, there's not necessarily a hierarchy of the two. I mean, obviously I'm an artist first and foremost, so that's, that's my goal. But the science is so deeply entrenched in everything that I do, it's kind of like the scaffold that it hangs upon. Um, so for me personally, they're they're kind of one and the same thing, and they they seesaw a little bit in the um, in which one's taking the lead. But I see it very much as a two-way iterative process. And can I ask you, Alex, on that? Um, how does that sort of collaboration manifest itself? I mean, are you do you go into a lab? Do you spend time outside of lab or working hours with scientists? Is it formal conversations? Is it informal conversations? How do you collaborate with science? based people um it's initially quite informal um i mean I've, I've, in the past i've tried a little bit to approach scientists but i think that was in the early days when i just didn't really have the confidence for it um but as my practice has developed i kind of obsessively like i said i, I scoop up academics at talks and I, I literally did just that before i worked with the ordered universe so i a friend of mine suggested I went to see a talk called The Medieval Theory of Everything. Um, and who wouldn't want to go and see that, right? So I went to this talk at the Royal Society and, um, and was blown away by these really strange thoughts by this medieval bishop and couldn't get enough of it. And I, I was so blown away that I couldn't speak to them at the time. So I emailed the guy in charge who now is um, a a collaborator and a very, very dear friend of mine, Professor uh, Giles Gasper, Durham University, he's a historian. And I said to him, um, would you be interested in working together and collaborating with an artist? And his response was, um, yes, your, your work is very much in line with medieval thought. And at the time, I didn't know quite how to take that. I thought, would, am I in the dark ages then? Is this he would hate me saying that the medieval period is dark ages they're not by any stretch um but i was like well that's i'm not sure how to take that but we started a dialogue and after about 18 months of working together i met a lot of scientists on the project it was very organic and a lot of these conversations happen outside of a conference room we'd have reading groups um so that's been one of the biggest collaborations i've had so far but um it depends on on the scientists. You know, sometimes um, I'll work with. You mentioned uh, earlier uh, when we spoke um, before the talk, Amelia, about Tom McLeish. Um, we often just sort of scribble around talking about um, uh, formulas and how different people interpret those sorts of things. So it's sort of it's quite organic and friendly. Um, but there are times that I go into the lab and it's a bit more formal, but that's, that's less the case. Okay, that's it's so fascinating hearing the different approaches that you can have to that kind of collaboration. Um, I suppose that leads me quite nicely onto um, the next question, um, which I suppose actually especially relates to what you said about going to that talk about the medievalist and really kind of his work or his ideas really resonating with you. Because um, I'm curious to ask you about where you locate the human or human narrative within the scientific paradigm in relation to your work. I'd love to know a bit about that. Well, the, the, the human narrative um, was something that, that was not that present when I began my practice. I actually, I think I was, I think I latched onto science um, initially because it felt a very um, pure, non-emotional way to engage with the world. I wanted to show the beauty and elegance and the complexity of natural phenomena. Um, but as I've kind of um, 
delved into those subjects and, and layers upon layers of that and, and into psychogeometry and philosophy and, and other ways of looking at those same phenomena through time, um, as well as from different perspectives. I've, I've kind of come to the sort of realization or that, or, or um, my light gone. Um, I just feel like there's something more, something bigger that connects it all. Um, so as a result, my practice has become a lot more philosophical and spiritual as a result. And that inevitably has led me to introduce more of the human narrative. Um, and the human narrative in relation to science, I'm not sure that I can necessarily explicitly answer that. It's more about, because science frames those amazing questions. It's more about our, the human narrative and the sense of all and the unknown, this sort of reach for something bigger than ourselves. Um, so that's developed over time. Um, and, and I think that's largely because of the subject matter. I don't know, maybe I'm just getting a bit old, mellow. <laughs> I think it's really important to think about that, that space of the human narrative and where it finds itself within art but it also where it finds itself within science. They're both two kind of methods of inquiry that are taking different approaches, but ultimately still looking for the same things, you know, about the nature of the universe, why we're here, how we got here, what is true, what we can actually know to be true, and, and finding the right names of things as well. Um, I really wanted something you mentioned earlier to kind of follow up on as, whether you can comment on the exploration of patterns in your artwork and what links you make to the things like magnetic fields or planetary orbits and how these patterns speak to you as an artist um, and why they feature kind of quite, quite heavily and consistently in your work. Um, I'm thinking about one of the pieces that I, I posted uh, when I knew that you were going to come and speak to us that I found particularly moving was black matter I think is really really beautiful and it was something that I spent some time on um by the way if uh, our audience hasn't had a chance uh, to connect with uh, the artworks uh don't worry they are still um on the website and um we've got pictures to talk about as well and um, so if you wouldn't mind talking about yeah the patterns and how they impact and influence your work Um, well, I think it's quite a natural progression, actually. When you're when you're looking into science and the natural world, those those patterns are, are everywhere. They're rich. Um, but I think what I'm more interested in, which I don't make explicit in my work, um, but it's there if you, if you care to look, is that the sort of the the not quite perfect nature of these patterns it's it's the fact that we kind of we're we're attracted to that beauty and that order and that symmetry um and there's a lot of connection between all these different type types of symmetry from different scales like like you say that like from a, a sunflower seed to a nebula for instance that kind of fractal geometry is is there um but it's those slight defects that interest me because it's this sort of tension between order and chaos. And that's specifically what I was addressing with black matter in that it, it's sort of, it's like we've got this inexplicable desire to seek order, to seek a moment of comprehension. Um, yet every single moment in any process is still as valid a moment as any other. It's just that there's something within the, the human psyche that that craves for a cadence to be resolved or, or for some kind of pattern to be discerned. Um, so it's actually, I, I use those patterns and that geometry in nature in order to highlight the tension and the, the irregularity and the slight imperfection and the fact that we can never quite become perfect. We can never quite understand everything. There's always a little bit more to reach for.
No, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I think um, I love what you're saying there about the, yeah, the, the, the imperfection almost being the kind of exception that proves the rule. And these, these sort of the, the slight deviance from the perfection is the thing that makes it noticeable or, or uh, marks it out um, as worthy of noting. Um, I, I kind of when I was originally looking at your work, um, Alex, when we first started having these conversations, I mean, I was kind of struck by a sort of strange parallel between um, for example, other collaborations between artists involving sort of mathematics um, and physicists. And I, I couldn't help thinking of um, the physicist Roger Penrose and MC Escher and those, that sort of very fruitful artistic, scientific, mathematical collaboration. Um, is, is there any sense in which I suppose the discourse between artists and physicists like that influences your work or is it just another happy parallel in our art science journey that we're all on together? Um, well, I think this might be quite a quick answer <laughs> I think I might surprise you in that actually I I tend not to no I mean that I'm so the 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 academics and friends that have become friends uh, in my life are so mind-bendingly impressive <laughs> that um, I don't really have much time to research other people's relationships in that and you know maybe I will in the future but for me, it's kind of personal one-on-one, -on -one, picking at the mind of someone incredible. Very cool. Um, and I was wondering too about this move from representation to actual exploration and prodding the universe. There've been a lot of um, discourses around art science and the ways in which art might be wielded as a tool to just represent purely a scientific concept, that it is used in the service of science in order to illustrate a scientific phenomenon or a physical phenomenon. And I was wondering, um, in our previous conversation, you'd mentioned how you were moving away from that direct representation, going into something a lot more exploratory that kind of encourages the audiences to participate and to ask questions. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that and actually art not as a tool wielded by science, but art inspired and informed by science that encourages questions. Wow, that's quite big. <laughs> <laughs> you just really did your work. It's pretty cool. <laughs> well, well, first of all, I, I think I might um, first talk about um, this change from representation to using the phenomenon because um i i really struggle with what what um you just mentioned about art being a representation of research i, I don't feel that that's the, the purpose of art i think art is about making people search for things making them think differently um so that's partly my drive, but it's but the move from representation to natural phenomena is more about the awe of the phenomena than it is um, about any sort of um, strategic move. I mean, I'm I'm often sort of pondering so many different things, from light to magnetism to to, to quantum theory. It's you know it's complex, but I. You know, I can find myself in a woodland or a beach and be overwhelmed by all the complexity of you know, the, the ecosystem and the erosion and lots of different processes at work and kind of get to the point where I just give up because nature does it so much better than me. How, how can I possibly compete? So it's that kind of tension of kind of somehow wanting to recreate this and put it in a different context and put some element of control into that, which is completely contradictory to what I'm actually trying to say, but in a way that tension is the point. Um, so for me, it was kind of an inevitability that um, the phenomena that scientists are researching has to be put center stage rather than me make any comment on it in a contrived way. It's more about placing that phenomena in a different context to get people to think of it differently. I don't no, know if that answered your question. 
<laughs> no, but I, I think it's it's so fascinating, um, Alex, particularly in the context of your work, where, like you said, you, this marked difference between this transition from representation, mere representation, to actually engaging with these concepts, because I think oftentimes when it comes to art and science and influencing each other, there is this kind of... It, you know, there is this kind of, I don't want to say misconception, but I suppose there's an idea that in order for art to engage in science, all it really can do is represent, you know, so, oh, let's take like a pattern from nature or a pattern from mathematics and represent it within the scope of an artwork. But what I really like about the thrust of your work and where I think uh, it's implied that your work is going and where you're continuing to, to kind of explore with it is this idea that like, no, it's, it's, it's in order to tease out certain things. And surely, you know, sure, you might not necessarily be doing this formally within a, a laboratory context or it might not necessarily be empirical, but still the idea that it's, in, it's, in, it's a collaborative process that you're going deeper than just representation is, is really invigorating, I think. Um, and it's, it's really exciting to be at that juncture. Well, I mean, I find it really exciting as well. And I, um, I, th I think it might also be that I'm just a little bit obsessive and stubborn about material as well. So in the way that a scientist would have a series of questions, if they present me with um, something that is known to be true, and I, I'll go, well, I'm, I'm not sure I'm willing to accept that. Why? And keep asking the question layer upon layer, but why, but why, but why, like a, an annoying four-year-old would. Um, but that's what fascinates me, going deeper and deeper and deeper. And I have um, a friend, who's another scientist, <laughs> surprise, surprise, um, who's brilliantly described my uh, practice, and I've never heard anyone top this, as the will to reverse entropy. Okay. So... And he's right. Basically, if, if something floats up, I want to push it down. So it's this constant prodding. And I, I think, I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm, I, maybe I was destined to be a, a scientist uh, rather than an artist. But it's, it's the continual questioning that I find is the most um, beneficial in that art-science collaboration, that you both get to push each other into different directions. Entirely, but I mean that that attitude in and of itself strikes me as kind of harkening back to, I don't know, the great thinkers of our time. You know that that it was that that resolute, you know, <laughs> but like that sort of resolute and dogged. Why, you know, like why is this? And and not necessarily being satisfied with the answers that current paradigms or structures for understanding things um can give us. And and I, I think again, like I know we've sort of said it before, but I'm really struck by the the. The, I guess epistemological kind of thrust at the heart of your work where it's what what can we know and why can we know it and why or why is it sort of configured in, in a certain way and I, I think that's really exciting um we might ask you about your intentions for future work so I know you've you've mentioned before that you've um you've works uh coming down the pipeline that use water ice salt and geological processes um so what is it maybe you could tell us a little bit about these processes from the natural world that are going to influence your work and how you how you plan to to use them um, well, at the moment, I can't give you a series, well, I pr actually probably could give you a series of sculptures I have in my head, but I'm not going to put them out into the world at this stage because they're, 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 too, they're too raw. But essentially, what I want to do is play with phase changes. So water is just an incredible material. It has so much potential. I mean, the the fairly recent piece I did last year, Cloud of Unknowing, was working with fog. And I've, I've previously had this sort of pull towards water, but having done that piece, I now, um, I now feel like, I, I mean, it was quite a monster. <laughs> I now feel that I can explore that um, further. And I feel like this is going to be like the actual, the, the, the total, um, apex for me to be able to manipulate water live in a gallery setting um, so it will go through all the different phase changes from from gas to liquid to to ice um, there'll be sonic elements as well um, but the thing that is center stage in new work moving forward is is about that that transformation it's about the process of one form turning into another um, and there will also be an element of erosion and accretion taking place. Um, so I'm going to use time, heat, 
and pressure and temperature as not as media but as a process uh, to transform these forms in a live gallery setting so there might be salt drawings there might be um, drip sonic installations um, and, and, and a performative element as well so I'm talking to quite a few people about this both scientists and other artists well other creatives not artists so far um, to work on this together and there'll also be a, a fairly academic and also historical um, context because the, the reason that water is is my go-to is that it's this sort of um, life force um, that, it, that we're all compelled to um, and it has so much resonance as a material uh, in terms of um, mythology for instance um, so it's it's a mixture of real scientific challenge in controlling this material as as well as um, this sort of spiritual yearning that is getting stronger and stronger and stronger in my work amazing so we amelia and i have about a million questions that we'd love to follow up with but it looks like our audience is getting pretty active and they've got some questions of their own so i think we're going to go ahead and turn to audience questions for the moment if that's all right with you and you guys have been popping in but please do feel free to keep asking questions comment um, so from Marta Ripamonti, do you think that artistic research helps scientific discovery in some way? Does it support scientific work, do you think? Um, yes, um, I'd certainly like to think so. I mean, in the, um, the fellowship that I've, I've been on recently for Material Imagination, which was about initially um, collaboratively developing biological smart materials. We all came into the room thinking that's what we were doing. Um, so there were social scientists and scientists and uh, myself, the, the only artist there. Um, but over the course of three months, the conversations made it clear that that wasn't what we were doing. What we were coming together was a much more profound, it was a more profound project. Um, it was about what what is living in the ethics of, of what we were trying to do um, and about um, a re-establishment of our place with the natural world and uh, this tension between care and control of how we form our environment. Um, so that specifically has informed the direction of research. So going from a, a very traditional rational approach to um to a problem it's now transformed into something that actually as a group we feel like it's some sort of paradigm shift coming and it's so big we don't really know what to do with it so i'm really excited about that um and that's that's more on a sort of conceptual level um and i think you do find that kind of influence um with some artistic and scientific collaborations on a sort of uh more tangible way um, but I think it's it's definitely strong, certainly in the good collaborations. Surely, and also too, I think it's really interesting. So coming from more of a science space myself, actually into the humanities, I never I, I was never encouraged to think about epistemologies or the way that we find truth, the way that we think about reality. And art is so good at asking those questions and and pulling you into that conversation. So. And I think it makes a lot of sense that art certainly has the power to give you that different perspective and those other lenses. Very cool. It might be appropriate to uh, segue into a question from um, Tim Stout, uh, who has asked, um, great conversation. Uh, Alex, what difference in function and epistemological value do you feel your works have, if at all, compared to the image or visualizations used by the scientists? So that's an interesting question there. Um, um, I, I think there's, well, I mean, it depends on the, the imagery of the scientists. I mean, that's a huge generalization that they don't have that effect. Um, but I think the fact that um, a lot of my work more recently is um, about experience rather than image or object um, 
plays a big part in that. Um, the cloud of unknowing, for instance, not that that was a scientific collaboration, but it's the most immersive and um, contemplative thing I've produced. Um, I think trans being able to transform um, the experience of an audience into something that's that's deeply personal and intimate um, while making you provoke while provoking um, questioning into the scientific element um, has a great deal of power so I mean I would like to think that it that it is a big difference to rather than like, just a representation of um, of a petri dish or a, you know a, a mycelial network or something like that I just my aim is to take it one step further so I hope it does that amazing so we've got another question it's from Anthony Quinn who says I like what you said about a two-way exchange between artists and scientists how have your collaborations with scientists changed the way that they work or the way that they think about their work have any scientists come to you and explained to you or told you the ways in which your work has changed or influenced the way they think? Um, well, uh, like this sort of a little bit similar to the other question that in some instances there are more tangible um, outcomes and, and tangible ways that that can be quantified. Um, but I think, and I, I don't know if I would necessarily say that I'd really influenced his uh, scientific work specifically, but certainly the conversations we've had have um, have opened up new new lines of inquiry. Um, a friend of mine, Professor Tom McLeish, um, I, I mentioned um, talking about formulas previously, um, and I've had with him and my partner who's also an artist very in-depth discussions about um how different how sorry how the same um idea was expressed in different ways um either pictorially or um in terms of formula uh, or was just linguistic um so i've had some really interesting conversations about how different types of people conceptualize and, and the crossovers between artists and scientists, whether you're lexical, whether you're visual, whether you're more abstract. And that conversation is continuing um, and it's growing into a project. We don't really understand what it is yet. Um, so I would say in, in that way, he's, he's um, opening up to different ways of approaching his work. Um, but I couldn't tell you if he actually does his experiments any different. Than Wonderful. I mean, Maybe segueing on from that, um, Claire Stode asks, um, when creating art from scientific concepts, how important do you see factual accuracy to the science? Mm. Um, pretty important, actually. Um, I mean, my work isn't the sort of work where you see quantitative things or, or really explicit scientific ideas. It's, it's more um opposing of the, the general field um so it's, i don't know it's i find that quite difficult yeah. <laughs> um well i mean it's a tough question to answer especially in light of how i mean as, as much as we're all art science enthusiasts here and our audience would, would feel the same i mean both of them are both of the discourses and the different modes of discourses that we have at our hands to talk about these, I mean, they're still very different, you know, as much as we like to think of them being um, this one blended field. It's, it's a hard question to answer when you're faced. It's kind of like an epistemological showdown between yeah. the hard facts of science. Um, I mean, I think what I take from the scientific work that, of people that I've collaborated with is, is not so much the, the minutiae, it's, it's the processes. So for instance, with material imagination, uh, we've been in the lab and actually this is an example of how how, some, how I have influenced someone's um, actual experiments. Um, we were working with membranes that stretch. So the, the reason I'm bringing this up is that it's about the conversations we've been having in that project is about material property and where we can take that and what 
that might mean in terms of how a person feels about that material and uh, what we can say about it conceptually. But in order to do that, you have to have a conversation about what physically can be done. So we were stretching membranes. Um, I won't go into the details of it because um, there's pages and pages of description in my sketchbook. Um, and, and she was stretching this membrane over a, a very small piece of apparatus in a certain way to produce a certain effect. And I was like, well, what if you do it in these two ways as well? What if you shear it this way or if you rotate it and things like that? And we had some quite heated discussions in, in the cafe at, at Durham. And she's like, but why would you do that? I don't understand. I do, what's the point in that? I was like, well, the point is to explore that, to find out what would happen rather than trying to get to a result and then work out how to do it. Then, you know, why don't we just play for a bit? Um, and that, so that was part of the three month fellowship that I did. Um, and I recently had dinner with her and she's like, I get what you mean now. I understand it. And, and that's taken me in a new direction now. I am going to, and it didn't do what I thought it would do. So, so in terms of like, um, so that's influencing the actual scientific work, but in terms of the facts being transferred, Yes, I do think it's essential that, that there's a kind of respect for that and a purity. Um, but in a sense, you kind of, you have to make the audience feel something so that there's a sort of playoff. So there's only so far you can go, which is probably why I'm not an artist who just represents the research. I think it's really interesting too, we think science is only allowed to be exploratory sometimes when there's the timing and then when there's the time and the money to play and to have those exploratory those options to explore i think a lot of scientists when we're young you think about you know asking these big questions and having all of the space and the time and the allowance in the world to actually be able to answer them then you get in and there's deadlines and all of this funding stuff that gets in the way and it's really nice to have somebody like yourself to come back in and say like, wait a minute, this process isn't just about the product or it isn't just about the outcome. We can learn new things along the way if we choose to play and make that a priority. And so one of the questions kind of along that line comes in uh, from Charlotte Van Ellen. And Charlotte, I don't know who you are, but I just love this question. I think this is great and I'd love to know um, what Alex thinks about this. Charlotte asks, what is your opinion about the biohacking slash DIY movement? How do you place and interpret your work within this context or in the future? Um, well, I mean, I, I've, I think it's really great that it exists. I think it's, um, you know, like, like you said, Amelia, there's, there's very little room for experimentation. Uh, sorry, Autumn, you, there's very little room for experimentation. So to have those kind of spaces where that exists and, and people are trying that is great. Um, I, I would say, though, I d I'm not entirely sure about the, the, the controls that are in place there. I mean, I don't know enough about those lab setups and what the implications of that is or the ethics. Um, but I think to, to, certainly to have that kind of experimental space now is, is a great, it's a great time to have it. And it's a great um, time to have that, um, these conversations about ethics and responsibility um, to, to come into play when there's so much interdisciplinary work um, in the field. For sure, absolutely. Um, I'm going to move on to uh, another question uh, for you, Alex. So we have quite a specific uh, two questions actually from Eric Schwartz, um, and Eric asks. So Eric is going quite specifically into um, into one of your artworks, uh, which is Black Matter, and we might get that up actually on the slides um, if it's possible because um, it's it's a really an amazing work. Um, but Eric asks, uh, would love to hear about the thought process that led to Black Matter whether there were scrapped versions, et cetera, or maybe how much of the square and oval cog design did you plan in advance versus discover from fiddling with the materials? So 
Eric is asking that about black uh, matter. And then he's also asking, while I understand you may have very good reasons not to indulge my curiosity here, I'm wondering if there are any images or sketches of the design available or photos of the mechanism. So <laughs> you have, you have a, a fan of black matter there. Um, black matter is actually one of my favorites. It was a real labor of love. And I've been thinking recently that I need to go back to that way of working. Um, it's one of the few times I've had focused time to work on one specific piece. So I was actually installing for another artist um, in a, a gallery in Sweden, Verket Museum in Arvesta, Sweden. Um, and I got talking to the curator about my work and she, and she saw this actual image that you have up here is a video sketch of, um, of some experimental things that I did while I was in Iceland on a residency. So what you're seeing now is actually um, a piece of MDF that I'd, I got drilled holes in and put a load of magnets in and stuck it on a record player put a piece of card on the top and iron filings, well very uh, magnetite, very fine iron filings, and spun it. And it, it produced these lovely patterns um, on a very lo-fi phone <laughs> I had at the time. And it was my first um, sort of, um, first try at video editing when I was in Iceland because we didn't have any other materials so I, I did this. And so this curator saw this particular video sketch, I like to call them, and she's like, what is this? What can you de develop this into something else? And the actual museum is um, an old iron foundry. And it's really amazing space. It's like cold and dark in places, or lots of places, but the architecture is amazing. And there was this particular room with a great big um, hole in the center of the room, which is where they used to in the iron of some sort, some description. <laughs> they used to shove it down this chute. So I was like, right, I want to respond to that space then. Um, and I, I sort of went through all different ideas of like chaotic pendulums and magnets swinging and, and pulling uh, the iron filings on top. Um, there was a sort of Pepper's Ghost version of it. So there were lots of different proposals in my head um, but I so I think actually yes it was a series of um, of trial and error and changing things um, I actually show this piece quite a lot in a number of my talks to show the different stages of it so there were very small cogs and then I got interested in lots of different types of cogs when you research cogs and how those can create different kind of patterns um, and in actual fact, when you see the piece in its entirety, it's about three metres wide. Um, all of that complexity is hidden uh, by this gold satin sheet. Um, and, and, and some people, I mean, I, I, I showed an artist who was also showing there because it was a massive group showing. He went, can I just have a look underneath? I was like, yeah, sure. And I lifted it up and he was like, Oh, that, that's by far the best I've seen in a long time. I love that. So he was more interested in the mechanism underneath. And, and I could see why it's very interesting. But what I love about that piece is that, cause it, so if you see the video on my website, there's a particular point in it where I slow the, um, one of the arms down and you can see all of the cogs turning to make circles and then it clears off again. So there's that slight order in chaos. And it's interesting how different people engage with that because you can just walk past and go, oh, it's a beautiful gold thing. And, just pass. and that's great. I really love that. And this is the point of what I'm trying to do in my work. It's like things are how they are on a very surface level and that's fine. But if you want to look deeper, it's there. Um, so sometimes they'll just walk past and other people you'll see sort of go, what was that? And then they'll look closer. And then they'll follow it around and then they'll wait for the moment that it, the two cross. And um, it's really lovely to have a piece that has that kind of engagement on so many levels. Um, and in answer to your second question, um, I think there's some like sketches and little mechanism stuff on Instagram, quite low down on my feed. Um, but if 
sneak peek behind the scenes stuff. Very cool. Um, so I, it's very, I'm quite spooked by the idea of an artist watching the audience interact with their piece. I'd be <laughs> so scared when I go to museums. When, when that happens once more, when we're allowed in museums again, maybe there's an artist lurking and I hope I'm, I'm looking up there. <laughs> but I love that you give permission that there, everybody explores in their own way and engages with it in their own way and all of those versions are okay. And um, kind of along those lines, I have an amazing question from uh, Mirded Safe. I know that I said your name wrong, I apologize, but I love your question. And Mirded asks, hi, uh, very interested in your work. Do you think art and science collaborations could involve the public in the dialogue and even further in the creative process? How do you see the role of a non-specialist discourse in interdisciplinary work? Amazing, amazing question, so good. And so appropriate as well, because um, that's one of the things that we are looking at in material imagination is that it isn't a case of these artists and scientists who are very privileged to have this period of research, go off and do their thing and present it to the public and go, oh, aren't we clever? Um, the, an element of that is about responsible innovation. It's about engaging with the audience, finding out what's actually needed and wanted and communicating these ideas with the public with non-specialists, like you say. Um, and that is really exciting for me. Um, I don't know how we do it. Like, practically, I don't know how we do it, but I think it's definitely the time for it. Um, it's very, it's long overdue. Um, but also, what is interesting, and aside from that, something that came out of that project was this idea of ownership about artists work and art in general you know when you're doing that kind of collaboration there's this so from the scientific side and output of that kind of project they want papers i'm not really interested in papers because it, it doesn't really do much for my career or i thought for my the way i was thinking but in writing that paper together it has changed my opinions on things we're only at the start of it, but it, it's worthwhile. And likewise, they wanted to be the artist too. And I think there's this really interesting territory that you can both venture in on, not necessarily stay there for the whole course, but um, I think there's definitely room for scientists and artists to let go of those roles and become a collective producing an artwork. Um, and it's something actually that I, I did have trouble with at first, but in this project, I want to produce work that's us. It's not me, it's not the scientist. Um, and it's not me teaching a, a scientist how to be an artist, which is often what, how things work in those kind of situations. I can't do that. What we can do is have a conversation and produce something together, genuinely together. Um, and we're just at the start of that. So um, I think this whole new third space is really exciting. And I think there's absolutely, definitely room for the public and non-specialists and they should definitely be there. I'm, I, it strikes me as well now, I'm stealing Autumn's thunder here as the, the resident science gallery uh, PhD researcher, but it strikes me that, I mean, that, that obviously in, in terms of what you're saying there, Alex, that the role of cultural and uh, educational institutions is just invaluable in that context. I mean, Science Gallery Dublin, particularly, like just speaking from personal experience and Autumn can attest, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's literally a space where that those conversations happen, you know, where the public walk in off the streets to have those kind of interdisciplinary conversations and tease things out and stuff. So yeah, it's a really, a really rousing endorsement, I think, um, in the best way of those kind of collaborative practices. And moving forward and um, we're going to try and squeeze in one or two more questions and um, before we unfortunately uh, break because we're nearly out of time um alex we have two questions for you uh, both pertaining to influences so uh, ross fraser smith asks um do you think your practice is influenced by the work of olaf or eliasson 
so that's the unless I'm very much mistaken I think that's the Icelandic amazing Icelandic composer um who I, I know had that fantastic exhibition in the Tate Modern um uh, last year or maybe earlier this year um time has ceased to mean anything um and then the second question about influence is uh, from Andrew Cummins who says thank you for the great webinar it's extremely interesting interesting my question is has any of your work ever been influenced by either the usage or knowledge of, of entheogens so that's an interesting question. Um, I think, unless I'm very much mistaken, I think entheogens are sort of th th these idea, these like, um, I suppose, natural uh, plants that have hallucinatory properties or uh, any of those kind of things. Yeah. So two <laughs> questions there about influences. I'm not really sure how to take that second question. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> um, first question. Um, Olafur Eliasson, yes absolutely influenced by him and I have to say enormously infuriated with him as well because he's done everything I want to do 20 years before I can do it and better so yeah whenever I see anything that really excites me bet your bottom dollar it's Olafur I mean I've got so much respect for the guy but does he have to beat me to it every time <laughs> So yes, absolutely, he's amazing. Um, the second question, I mean, I, not directly, but um, I've read a bit about that in the past and it's, it's starting to come back actually. Um, so different states of consciousness and nature and that connection is, is, kind, is very, it's there in the back of my mind but i find that with a lot of um lines of questioning in my work they kind of take like three to five years to bubble to the surface to manifest into anything so i kind of describe my practice generally as as a bit like the cloud of unknowing this fog that's just there's this potential there with lots of different ideas lots of different strands there's the threads going through all the time and by instinct i kind of follow all of those threads and that might be magnetism and that might be the idea of faith and it might be ecosystems and none of them seem to make sense to me as a whole but at some point if i have the faith that, that there's there's that those ideas have got legs they eventually kind of converge back to make sense and then the whole process starts again it just like splays out into more threads and really irritative but i think what you're talking about is one of those threads and i think it's a few years off yet so watch this space that's so fascinating i mean just even on that like i know you mentioned cloud of unknowing and one thing i think that that struck me particularly um in relation to it is that uh, just to tie everything together is that i know you mentioned um the academic tom mcleish who you've worked closely with before and it Tom McLeish has written a wonderful book. Um, I know the one I'm familiar with is the, the Poetry and Music of Science, uh, which I think, Alex, you were saying that one of your artworks graces the cover of, it, potentially it's that book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, one thing that, that um, McLeish writes that, that sort of strikes me as, as particularly wonderful is, is this idea that, Oftentimes, um, I suppose it was kind of, there's kind of a, a weird, I suppose, stigma against science that he traces, interestingly enough, back to um, the romantic poets. And since my own area of research is poetry, um, I find this fascinating, but he says that we kind of, it's, it's the romantic poets that are, ones that, that are the ones who originally kind of spread this idea that poetry or the arts and science were incompatible, that science was sort of to desiccate and to remove the wonder from, the kind of act of pondering the universe or trying to know things about the universe. Um, but I think that particularly with your work, Cloud of Unknowing, it's almost like the literalization of a return to this state of, of unknowing and wonder that you kind of, you, you find that, but it's through exploring both scientific and artistic roots and combining them. And I think that's, that's really, really wonderful in, in terms of like, like you said, the, the, the amount of time that it takes to enter into that state of wonder, how long you have to remain with those ideas swirling around um, and uh, before the work of art manifests itself. And that strikes me again, hark harkens back to the, the whole process that anybody has to go through when contemplating the universe or coming up with a great idea or uh, manifesting a work of art. Um, so yeah, maybe that's a full circle there <laughs> that might bring our <laughs> webinar to the close. Um, Autumn, I don't know if you have maybe one more uh, question or, or two to squeeze in. I know we're quite tight for time. I think 
feel like I've got about a million, billion questions, but I just want to say uh, thank you so much, Alex, for coming in and doing this with us. Thank you, Rivka, who made the suggestion and recommended your work. Um, Black Matter is the one that actually, I don't know if we're allowed to announce favorites, but for me, that was one that really stuck with me and I keep revisiting. Um, and I found just really beautiful and, and peaceful to look at. Um, especially right now, it's been a great comfort. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for, for creating that piece, for joining us. Thank you to everybody who came in and joined in the conversation. I love this idea of ending on this return to wonder. And even though science and art help us ask questions and answer them, uh, for every answered question, for every great question, there's gonna be 10, 20, 30 more. Um, so thank you for reminding us of that and helping us kind of reconnect with that sense of wonder in a really strange, um, a really strange time. So thank you so much. And to everyone else from our quarantine caves to yours, stay curious, stay safe, and stay kind. Um, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral Changes. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.